the Bible is full of characters, lots of them. You get mini biographies of these characters in the Old Testament. Some of us have got to know Jacob a little bit, maybe. David a little bit more. Nehemiah, well, where's he? I, I knew him once, but uh, I think I need to visit him again. And you know, there's Ruth and all these mini biographies uh, come up. But probably the people we know more than anyone else in the whole of the Bible, including the New Testament, are Jesus himself, and secondly, the Apostle Paul. We know more about them personally than anyone else in the Bible. And this morning, because we're looking at the letter to the Ephesians, we're continuing to look in chapter 3, verses 1 to 13 this morning. Keep that open, if you would like, uh, to follow what I have to say. But, uh, you know, the thing is this. You get to know someone through all sorts of things. One of them is letters. If you read somebody's letters, you get to know something about them. Often, if I'm studying a historical person, I don't just read a biography, I like to read their letters. And I like to read their letters because letters are a little bit more unguarded. They're very contemporary to the person themselves, and often they haven't fully summed up what they're going to say. They're writing to someone, they're waiting. You get to know someone by their letters. Many of us have destroyed letters that were, were sent to us years ago by various girlfriends and boyfriends because that says too much about them and says too much about us. So we, we, we throw them away. I've never thrown any away. I've got them all. I've got all the letters. It's so much fun going back every now and again. But here we have the letters of Paul. And in Ephesians, we have a key letter of Paul. The question I want to ask is this this morning. What does this letter, specifically in chapter 3, teach us about Paul's inner passion? What does it tell us about the man himself? What makes Paul tick? Why is he as passionate as he is? What is it that made him go to Rome eventually and face imprisonment and eventually death. What kept him going? I want to know. I want to know because there are hard times ahead for all of us. I believe there are hard times even in this nation as Christianity really goes down a little, as churches empty a little as persecution in lots of different ways might show its ugly face. And we need to know what made Paul tick, what made Paul keep on keeping on. I want to know that. And I believe that he would want us to know that as well. So I'm taking five points this morning. They're pretty straightforward, nothing too complicated. The first one is this. Paul has found a secret. Paul has found a secret. 
One of the games I love to play, maybe some of you played it, I'm not sure if it's in this country or in Britain, Balderdash. Does that make sense to you? And Balderdash is a game of definitions and trying your best to bluff people about the meaning of a word. You know, you all write different definitions and then someone reads out all the definitions and you've got to guess what the real definition is. Now, the game I like to play, which is very similar to that, is a game called Ex Libris. It's my favourite game. And as a family, we usually play it at least once a year. And Ex Libris, it's all about books, by the way. <laughs> Ex Libris from books. And in the card, you get a card, and in the card, it has a description of a famous novel. And then it has the first line of that novel and the last line. And then you read the description of the novel, and everyone then tries to imagine what the first or last line is. And then you've got to guess this. It's so much fun. It is so much fun. And believe it or not, it says a lot about the people who are playing. It says where their minds are going. But in this game, I like to be the person who hosts the game. I don't like to take part in the game. I like to be the person who knows the mystery. I like to be the person who knows who done it. And I feel, I feel good. And I know who's written all these definitions. And it is so exciting. And you know, Paul, part of the passion of Paul is that he knows a mystery. He knows something that hasn't been made known. And now he's the one who knows. And he's excited about this secret that he has. Listen to the words he uses in the chapter. He's found a secret. He's found a secret to a mystery. The word is repeated. Verse 3. The mystery made known to me by revelation. Verse 4. My insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 5, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostle and prophets. Paul speaks of a past mystery that has now been explained. And he's excited about knowing that he's got the answer to this mystery and he wants to tell everyone. It's like having good news. Isn't it wonderful if you have good news and you can't wait to get home and you say, guess what? Guess what? And we all try and guess. And on Sunday, when the family get together around the table, um, sometimes there's good news and we have 20 questions. And you've got to guess what the good news is. Is it about your work? No. Is it about something you've given? No. <laughs> and you go on and on. We make everything into a game. Wonderful. But the point I want to make is this. It's wonderful to have something that you know and other people don't, and it encourages you to tell that, to pass it on. You've discovered it. Discovered it. And you're excited about it. And I want to say this, that Christianity is about an ongoing discovery of God. It's not something once and for all that happened, but it's an ongoing pilgrimage. The word pilgrimage in and of itself gives us a hint. You're pilgrim towards somewhere. You're going somewhere. Can you imagine being there 
Can you imagine being Lord Carnarvon in 1922 when he discovered the tomb of Tutankhamun? I've been to a, a make-up of that tomb in the Valley of the Kings. Quite incredible. Imagine the time when he just got there and, you know, the thing was opening and suddenly he goes back 3,000 years. I think it's about three, three and a half thousand years. Wow! He must have been excited. He is not going to go home and say nothing about it. He can't help but talking about his discovery. It's like a journalist. I've never been a journalist. I don't know if any of you have. But a journalist receiving a scoop. Receiving something that, wow, is news. Paul receives a scoop about salvation. And he wants us to know about that. And this is the answer, I believe, to personal evangelism. I can remember years ago in the 70s, when I first became a Christian, uh, sometimes there were books printed on how to share the gospel with people. And you'd go somewhere to how, how to bring up the gospel with different people. And there's a place for that, I'm sure. But let me tell you the best encouragement for personal evangelism. Get excited about your faith. Discover more about it. You can't help it. You will not be able to help it. The same is true with a good restaurant. You know when I discovered a good restaurant, I want to tell people about it. Why? Because it tastes good. It tastes good. Actually, uh, if you discover a bad restaurant, you want to tell somebody about it as well. But you see the point I'm trying to make? The unknown has been made known to Paul. The mystery is no longer a mystery. And that's the passion behind. Second point is this. Paul accounts the work that he's involved with as more a privilege than position. More of a privilege than position. Listen to how he describes his work. Verses 7 and 8. The description of himself, his self-image is telling. A servant of this gospel. So he describes himself. So he sees himself. A servant of this gospel. How does he get to it? How did he get the job? Listen, here to go. He didn't pass exams. It wasn't because he was brilliant. No. Listen. By the gift of God's grace. He's a servant of the gospel, not because he's brilliant, but because of the gift of God's grace. In one sense, we could say he is not getting a job because he has proved himself, but because God has been merciful. He is not going to brag, I've made it. Not at all. Listen to what he says in verse 8. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me. He's the least. But God has given him this. He is a servant. His job is not status. He feels privileged in having the job. He doesn't feel that God has got a wonderful person in him. Rather, he has a wonderful God who has called him. Do you see the difference? He is honoured by the privilege he has. 
He is honored by the gift he has been given. He is honored by the placement that God has given him. It's a great job philosophy. He is not the center of his own world. I think it would be good for anyone in any job to begin to feel like that. I wish many politicians would feel like that of all parties. I wish they would care for what is true and not just care about their own positions. The problem is they care about themselves too much. Not Paul. I am a servant. I am a servant. He had plenty going for him in the religious world. He describes it in Philippians 3, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, Hebrew of the Hebrews, etc. He goes on and on and talks about it. You can read it yourself. But compared to this new privilege, Paul says, all that is rubbish. I count it as rubbish. The Greek is skubala. I think, is it skubala? You know your Greek. Yeah, two of you all know your Greek. It's awful having at least two and, and one in the gods over there who also knows their Greek. That's, that's awful. Now, I won't ask you what the literal translation of skubala is because it's pretty extreme. Am I? Is that right? Right, okay. So you need to ask them afterwards, okay? You can leave them. But it's more than rubbish. It's more than rubbish. The point is he, he regards his position now as as greater than everything anybody had ever given him. He is privileged to serve. He is glad of the opportunity to serve. I just want to say it this time. I'm so thankful over the years of so many Christians who've served invisibly in the church. Many Christians serve visibly. I do. I love it, you know that, you know, I'm an extrovert, and you know, I was speaking to someone the other day, and the person says, you know, they said, every time I, I go into that pulpit, I get, I get EBGBs, and I'm not feeling well, and I, I get worried, and I get worried, and, and someone else turned to them and said, well, that shows, that shows you're a good pastor, and then I said, do you know, I've never felt that in all my life, <laughs> never have, I love it, I can't wait, I can't wait. I'm like, I just want to get up there and talk. We're all different, okay? We're all different. But the point is, many people are never seen serving. Their service is invisible, not to God. The word deacon, diakon, diakonos, means someone who serves. And God calls people to serve. Listen to Jesus' self-description. I am with you as one who serves. And it's in the context of John 13, foot washing. It's an honor to do certain things that aren't seen as magnificent in the eyes of the world. It's important for us to realize that we are called to serve. What will God say in that day of judgment? Well done, you good and faithful servant. We are servants. Primarily, my job is to be a servant of God. Primarily, our jobs are to be servants of God. It's not about position. It's not about title, authority, clout, 
importance. We are servants. Paul understands that. He serves something greater than his own self-image. Thirdly, another clue for his passion, it's not just principles, but people. He cares for people. He is a people person. Listen to him. Why does he endure captivity? Verse 1. For the sake of you Gentiles. He's thinking of individuals. Verse 6. The secret itself involves people. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one uh, body, sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. He sees individuals brought in. He sees individuals experiencing the unsearchable riches of Christ. And he thinks that's fantastic because it's going to change their lives. Christianity is about seeing people's lives changed. It's about seeing our own lives changed. But it's about seeing other people's lives changed as well. And you know, people, the more we recognize that we are called to be servants, the better it is for the church. Will this service put you out? That's a question to ask. Will serving God put you out? Will it cost you? Yeah? Yep. Will giving a tithe cost you? Yep. It will. Yep. Yeah, but will I get something back in return? No, you just give the tithe. You're minus your tithe. It's called sacrifice and servanthood. God calls us to be servants. And I am thankful that it does cost. It does cost. I am thankful as I am preparing this. I was thinking of people who'd served me, had been a servant to me throughout my life as a Christian. I've often spoken of my teachers in school who were servants to me. They, they passed away 20, 30 years ago. But I still remember them. They served me. A noisy guy. I discovered the other day my grammar school report for when I was in Standard 4. And the first part said this. And up until that time, there was a the thing that the, the, the teachers to sign in, and it was conduct. And they put what your conduct was. And up until that time, my conduct was always very good, excellent, whatever. And my mother would take this to the local shop and show it. Here's my boy. Here's my boy. Excellent, all good grades. Until I was 15. Conduct. Noisy. Noisy. Could you believe it? I've been trying to get over it for years. That's why I'm in the ministry, all right? And then six months later, the report for the whatever it was, the summer, still noisy, still noisy. And you know, I'm still noisy after all these years, still noisy after all these years. Some of you thinking, what's gone wrong with the pastor? And some of you saying, hey, I remember that as well, but don't worry about that. I'm thankful to people who were there and encouraged me. I thank older people, much older than me, 
when I was welcomed, I remember going to the Gospel Hall for the first time. I've said the story many a time. For those who, I came there with my jeans jacket and my long hair, you know, all, all out there. And, you know, I, I came to this very traditional Gospel Hall. And, you know, they, they welcomed me. They hugged me. I'd never, never come across this. They'd hug me. Hello, I pray for you. I do this. I pray. Fantastic. Fantastic. They served. Some of them would never became famous, but they served. And the question comes to us, how am I serving the next generation? What am I doing? Fourthly, I'm coming quickly to an end now. He revels in the manifestation of God's glory. Listen to verse 10. His intent was that now through the church, through us, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. He wants to glory in what God is doing. He wants to be involved so that even the spiritual powers know that things are happening here on earth. The manifold wisdom of God is being made known even to negative forces. They're knowing that something is happening and that is going to the glory of God. We don't usually think of the heavenly realm in this case. The one that reminds me of it is a man called Richard Wombrand. I've spoken about him many a time. Richard Wombrand was a Romanian pastor and they stuck him in solitary confinement for seven years. Just think of that for a minute. Seven years by yourself. Talking to no one. Seven years. Wow! You know, I thought the lockdown was bad for a few months. I thought that was, I thought I was going crazy. And some of you were as well, I know. All right. Imagine seven years. And do you know how he kept himself sane? He preached to the angels. <laughs> there was nobody to preach to, so he thought, well, I'm going to preach to the angels. So he, he composed sermons in his mind, and he preached to the angels. And a number of years later, they were published, and it's called Sermons in Solitary Confinement. And he says at the beginning, some of these sermons are a bit odd. <laughs> But he said, I was seven years in solitary confinement. This is what I said. You can decide for yourself. But he was concerned. He was aware of the spiritual realm as well. And lastly, verse 13. I've already said this in two of my points, but I just want to maybe re-emphasize it. He is not the center of his life. He is not the center of of his life. Listen to the verse. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. In other words, he doesn't have a poor me story. In the midst of all the things he's going through, he says, oh, you don't know what I'm going through. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. You get people like that. Man, they can wear you out. They can wear you out very quickly had someone in a certain church and the person the person naturally she hadn't seen many people during the week and you know I would meet with her and she would start straight away oh isn't it terrible all the murders on TV oh that earthquake and then there was this and then there was that and do you know the police they were doing this they shouldn't have done that and then do you know in about three minutes I'm like 
She'd taken all my energy and put it somewhere. I don't know where it was. I had to revive myself, you know, afterwards. And people can be like that. And there's a, can I say, there's a time to be like that when you really had a rough time. That's okay. That's okay. But if you're like that all the time, something wrong. There's something wrong. And think of the people you're sucking dry, okay, when you're doing that. But he doesn't have a poor me story. Rather, he thinks in the context of God. Here is someone who's found the secret. Here is someone who's in on the mystery. Here is someone who is passionate for the gospel. The secret to that ongoing passion is to be found in this chapter, in these 13 verses. Read them again, because I've left so much out. Read them again with that question in mind. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mystery of the gospel, which has not remained a mystery, but has been made known. Thank you, Lord, that you made known your will, that you have good news, Ewangelion Totheo, the good news of God. We thank you. And that, Lord, this morning, we are healers of that good news that people can come to Christ, can experience forgiveness and new life, whatever they're going through. Lord God of heaven, may you have the glory for our service here through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen.